and homemade cake. Let's say prayer. Um, any any special prayers besides those at this table? Except <laughs> <laughs> for my sister, her father-in-law is in hospice, and he was having to take her mother-in-law, who is, has severe Alzheimer's. I wanted to see him to say goodbye. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is your father-in-law? No, this is my sister's father. Sisters. Um, what's his name? Melvin. Melvin. Anybody else? We can pray for Perfecto if he's interviewing. Still. I thought that got settled. Is he still? Well. Oh, he's working, but he's yeah. interviewing while he's working. I just want the right thing to happen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for um, our life from you, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass, your words to us, um, the encouragement we get in the warnings, steady. Um, um, let me say a prayer that I, I say often, but I'd like to say it to every, um, um, that I say often. but. Father, um, help each of us to be um, the children you've given us to be, sons and daughters, each. That each one of us is a son and a daughter to you. Help us to do that, to be who you've given us to be. Christ, help us to be your friends, to love as you do. Holy Spirit, um, help us to give ourselves as a gift the way you do. Unnoticed, not to call attention to ourselves freely. Um, Help us each to do that, please, in all that we do. Um, ask a special grace on Melvin um, as he apparently reaches the end of his life, and his it's his wife, Sally. Sally, um, watch over them. Um, help her to let him go. Um, help him to do whatever he can and whatever his condition to to also let go, to open himself to you, to be received. Um, forgive him his sins. Um, that he can see your face, stand in your presence, and know the joy and all that will unfold there in your kingdom. I ask a, um, a blessing also on Perfectus. Um, help him in his interview. Um, more importantly, help him find the right job. That um, for all those who love him, that um, their hearts will be quieted and he can get on with his work. And we ask a special blessing on Chester and Valerie um, today on his birthday um, for the gift that he's been to her and their children, their family. Um, bless him in um, the coming year. Let this year be a good one for him um, in every way, not just financially, but spiritually. Um, let it be so for all of us. Um, help us to take these works that these people have given us and live them. Um, St. Thomas, you helped us to see that um, it's one of the most important things for us to do is to see things as they are, not to change them because we want things a certain way, and to love, um, to live the truth, to bring Christ to everything we do. Christ, help us to do this, um, to bring you to a world Give us the courage to put away ourselves so that we can do this unafraid and strengthen in us a spirit of humility um, and that people will know you that way. 
We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You want to do it now? Light a candle and let us... Chester, you have to blow this out really fast because John said candles are not allowed. So he's making That's an right. exception here. That's right. All right, there you go. Candles not allowed in church. No. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Chester. Happy birthday to you. And many more. <laughs> Try not to blow on the. Can everybody pull out the Shakespeare sonnets? But he looks like he's serving. I don't know. By the way, I forgot to do this. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm losing it. Really am. Bob and Marcy are struggling. Bob's um, had a condition with his liver. Bladder and kidney. He's been bleeding for a long time, and um, blood is in his urine for a long time. And um, they weren't here last week. We got a call from them, I guess, earlier today, telling us they wouldn't be here tonight because he's going to the bathroom every half hour. He didn't get any sleep during the evening or the night, so he's exhausted, and I'm sure Marcy is too. So. Keep them in your prayers, okay, Bob and Marcy, because it's um, it's been a tough month or two for them. Um, do you all have Shakespeare? Yes. Let's see. Do you want to? Are you going to serve, or do you want everybody to come up? What do you want to do? I can put out a bunch of different uh, slices, and those can take. I know Mayor Jane's eager to get up there. And Mark. Mark, yeah, oh yeah. What did you do? <laughs> okay. It's, e it's, easier, okay. it's easier to ask what you didn't. Oh no, no, not even if you knew Mike. Right. Yeah, we were, put it this way, we got in trouble a lot and we deserved every day of work. <laughs> I, I think you're too hard on yourself always. No. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, I'm going to do um, two sonnets today, tonight. Um, 73 and 146, because I think they both relate to our play, and so I'm glad to keep the connection going. Let's see if I can give Chester and Valerie a minute here. Next week, 
I'm going to take a few minutes to finish up All's Well. I'm, I'm hoping that we can get through most of it tonight. But I want to, I, I, I'm going to try to go through a, a good bit of the play to hopefully to bring out some things that you might have missed. And I may not be able to give time to the conclusion that I'd like. So I'm just, just so you know, I'd like to leave a little bit of time next week at the beginning of the class to just pull All's Well together, make some final comments on it, some offer some final reflections on it. And we'll start, um, we'll do Merchant of Venice. We're not going to do the, we're not going to do Merchant the way we did it last time because we've already done it. So it'll be a second time around. We could do it and justify it, honestly. We could take three weeks and it would be a good three weeks, but I don't want to do that. So next week, after taking a little bit of time with Oswell, I'm going to go through Merchant again, and I'm probably going to bring in Othello. So it, um, if you've got a copy, bring it. If not, don't worry about it. I'm, I'd, we're not going to go through it textually the way I tend to do. But just know that I'm going to be making comments um, to it because we're going back to the commercial world. One of the reasons for doing this, I want to make this really clear right now, is because Merchant of Venice, Othello, and All's Well were all written roughly in the same time. It's when Shakespeare enter, enters his dark period. But also because they're the ones that deal most explicitly with the modern secular world. Okay, So they look more directly back to Chaucer and ahead to the world as we know it. They look ahead to the modern commercial regime in the way Dante's Commedia does. So in one sense, we're looking at ourselves pretty directly. So next week we'll do, um, we'll start Merchant Venice, we'll spend a couple weeks on it. And then we're going to do um, T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. Um, I'm not going to do Scarlet Letter. My wife's making faces. She keeps telling me to leave something out, and then I talk about leaving that out, and she scowls at me. Um, um, because I want to, I want to get to Murder of the Cathedral because we're going back to St. Thomas's Shrine, so we'll be picking up Chaucer. But I really want to get to Dostoevsky because those books have been in the office now for a year, and I want to clean them out. And I think it would be good to to get Dostoevsky behind us. It'll it'll help. Um, fill out our work on the modern world. Okay. We're doing. We'll, we'll try to finish up all's well tonight. We'll do Merchant of Venice next week. A little bit of Othello, and then we'll do Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot, and we'll spend a couple weeks on that, and then we're going to do Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Okay. Do you all have your poems? Yeah. Chester, happy birthday. Have a good have a good rest of the day and a good year. Okay. In Sonnet 73, the poet Shakespeare is reminding his beloved and himself how important it is to love because um, Time is fleeting, it's passing, we don't have much time together. And knowing that, we should love well on what we're about to lose. We're all, gonna, we're all losing each other, all of us are getting older, particularly in this group. 
we're all mm -hmm. of an age. Um, so I'm assuming it's something on our hearts that we're aware that we don't have much time is left. So he's saying, um, love that which we're going to lose shortly. In 146, he's, um, it, he opens castigating himself, um, telling himself, why, why is he giving all of this time to his sinful earth, which is another word for his body, or earthly things? It, it can specifically refer to his body, but I think more generally it, it can refer to what Paul calls the flesh, the, the, the things of this world that we give too much importance to. And he ends turning the poem on its head um, with a twist, and, and instead of making it clear, let's see if it becomes clear when I read it, okay? Mm -hmm. But in some ways it, it speaks to all's well, because all well, all's well deals with love and um, what appears to be a death. I mean, I, I'm going to raise this question with you all when we get there, because the understanding at court is that Helena died. So when she shows up at court, everybody's shocked. They think she's dead. Why did Shakespeare do that? He didn't have to do that. She could have come back without giving this sense. So thematically, it's an important question. Um, um, both she and Bertram won't come to the love that they come to at the end without undergoing a death, each of them. It's a different kind for both of them, but they, they have, like all the lovers that we've seen in Chaucer and Shakespeare, they have to learn to put themselves away if they're going to love as they've been asked to by Christ. And in the case of um, Bertram and Parolles, certainly, um, both of those men are blackguards. They're, they're scoundrels. Uh, it's, um, there's a lot in them that's not good. And um, both of them reach a point where they have to, really by force, by the influence of other people, they have to learn to confront themselves and see themselves as they are before they can go on and complete their love. Okay, so um, Shakespeare's deeply aware of those concerns. So without saying much more about them, let me just read these two poems and we'll get to the play. Sonnet 73. That time of year, now remember, Shakespeare's sonnets has three quatrains, three groups of four lines, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. So typically he gives us three exempla, three examples of a truth, um, which makes it clear that this truth is universal. It exists everywhere in being, all things share it, or he couldn't give us different examples. That's what allows him to make the generalization he does at the end. So every sonnet, or almost all of them, speak to a universal truth. This is so important. Um, he, he doesn't belong to a nominalistic world the way we do. He doesn't just believe in particulars. He knows that there are universal truths, that truth and virtue and goodness have a reality beyond our world, or he couldn't come to his conclusion and offer a truth. Okay? So it's got three different exemplars, three different examples, um, and then a conclusion. In the first one, it, it, um, they're all having to do with things that are dying out, the season, the day, um, and a fire. Okay, Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, 
or few, to hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare, ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away that second self that seals up all in rest. So there's these intimations of death in the season, in the day itself, in the sun going down. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Sonnet 146. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth. You can think of sinful earth in terms of the body or the flesh, the earthly things. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, painting thy outward wall so costly gay? Why do you give so much time to things that are, are going to pass away? Why so large a cost, having so short a lease, dost thou upon thy fading mansions spend their dying body? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store, to increase it. By terms divine, in selling hours of dross, by giving up all these things, instead of feeding yourself with them when it leads to nothing, by terms divine, in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. Is everybody clear on the conclusions? Mm -hmm. Hmm? Absolutely. Jeannie, did you, or somebody, I heard somebody say, Valerie, was it? Sorry? It was Mark. Absolutely not. <laughs> did somebody, Valerie? No? We didn't be fit, so, instead of waste, so, if we gave ourselves to lust all the time, or overeating, or over drinking, and we kept making our body, when our body's gonna die, yeah? If we stopped doing that and feeding the excesses in our life and started take a, taking more care of the divine part of us by terms divine and feeding the inner life, the interior, so that we're spending less intention on those things that are going to pass, then we defeat death. Um, so shall thou feed on death that feeds on men and death once dead, that once we give ourselves to to self-renunciations, to self-denials, and become better inside, the more we defeat death and, 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 and according to our beliefs, obviously enter into the life of Christ more fully, participate in his divine life while we're here. We're not given over to the world so much. Okay, um, beautiful poems, all the sonnets we've been reading. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? And so suitable for a birthday. <laughs> True. Clock's ticking. <laughs> okay. God, my God. What is wrong with
sorry. <laughs> in the movie we watched the other night, the Jackson Cries Theater of Blood, and he acts out all Shakespeare scenes to kill his critics. Who's this? What movie? Theater, theater of Blood. blood. Like it. <laughs> it's with Vincent Price and Diana Rigg. It was from Very 19... Shakespearean. Yes. Entirely Shakespearean. He's a Shakespearean actor and he kills all his critics. <laughs> <laughs> but in the Shakespeare text. So you have Julius Caesar scene with Ed Brutus. You mm -hmm. have the guy with the dress. Pound of flesh. Got the pound of flesh. Yes, in there. yes. You have the guy with the horse dragging the guy, or whatever that one is. Or Hector. Hector being dragged. Wow, good oh. for you guys. So I'm sorry. I mean, that's no. a frame of mind. Make a shift here, can you please? Yes, I will. <laughs> um, by the way, Suzanne, I, I, I'm almost a little bit reluctant, but since, in a facetious mode for a second, Suzanne and I have been watching this thing on Prime. It's a series called um, Goliath. Dark. Dark. Maybe too dark for you guys, I don't know. But it's, um, it, it's the first series I thought was amazing. It's playing the D David Goliath thing that this lawyer, Billy Bob Thompson, or Billy... Oh, God. Yeah. Um, he's a lawyer. Um, it's really interesting because it's, it's some no accounts. Uh, alcoholic, an ex-prostitute, or a prostitute trying to get out of her field. And a, anyway, it's a, a couple of marginalized people who are taking on a major law firm that, that um, Thornton helped found and um, got thrown away from. And Anyway, he takes on this, this major law firm it's taking on all the modern isms in an, an amazing way. It's a David and Goliath story that this single guy um, with these sort of back alley people that uh, and he, it, it's I, I think it's really done. It gets the second season gets dark and perverse and I'm not as easy with it. We're watching we're coming to the end of the third season right now. But, so just to let you know. Come on, let's do this. Um, God, it's just getting worse for me. Okay, we're on the threshold of modernity. Shakespeare wrote these, um, these plays, um, Merchant, All's Well, Othello, roughly in the same period. It's when he's entering the dark tragedies. Othello, he's already in a, Hamlet's been written. Julius Caesar's been written. And his view of the world is um, deepening and maturing and in two of the works, Merchant and this one, we're getting a comic treatment of a serious problem. Um, but it's his treatment of the modern world, and, it, and we've already done Merchant, so I, I don't want to go there there, and we've done Othello. We're in All's Well, That Ends Well. It's a very Machiavellian thing, theme. He's aware of those influences that, have, that are changing the world dramatically. Copernican Revolution, the Reformation, we, we've talked about the Reformation now, the, the defection of England from the church, the, the, the breakup of the church, the, all of the Reformation's um, parties that develop, um, the challenge to authority, the fragmenting of the world. Um, and in Merchant of Venice and Othello, Shakespeare's looking specifically at the modern commercial regime. It's here. We've already looked at Merchant of Venice and Othello. And you remember in, in Merchant that um, people are driven by money. It's what they want more than anything. And um, Antonio takes out a loan from Shylock. Shylock calls it in. Antonio can't make good on his promise. And Shylock takes him to court and he's going to lose his life. It's only because of um, 
Portia comes into Venice that he's saved. And if you remember the play, if Shylock gets his bond, Antonio's dead. If the Christians get their way because they want mercy, wait, let me go. If Shylock gets his way, Antonio's dead and the commercial regime dies. Because nobody's going to be willing to risk if the cost of the if the harshness of the bond is kept. Okay? Nobody's going to risk. So the city's in jeopardy either way. If he's killed, nobody's going to be willing to risk the, the law is too harsh. If the Christians get their way and he's let go, nobody's going to risk because the bonds aren't binding. The laws aren't binding. It's only Portia who comes in to get him off because she, she I don't want to go through this, but she does something with the law that nobody else can. What Shakespeare makes clear is that Venice can't save itself. It's only because of somebody comes in from an outer world, it's called Belmont, and it's there we know um, that she was raised on philosophy, literature, poetry, it's all in her. She was able to bring something to this Venetian world the Venetian world couldn't. One of the characteristics of that Venetian world is its shallowness. It's so concerned with material financial success that nothing else is important. So the people don't they don't have a background in the arts, they don't have a background in poetry, they don't have a background in philosophy. It's those things that Portia brings. It's only because she has them that she can do what she does. We've got something similar. It's not quite the same thing, but it's similar in All's Well That Ends Well. In the Paris court and in Rousseau, um, with the Countess and Bertram and their families, we've got an image of a regime in decay. Everybody's dying off. The king is dying. Um, Bertram's father is dead, the Countess's husband. Um, Helena's father is dead. There are no marriages, again, none. What we've got is a life at court in which people are so taken up with um, shallow things that it's dying. Um, the king can't be healed. Um, the lords are going off to war. The, the, it's a war the king is not supporting. The men are going off to war because they have nothing to do. And I'm saying that really literally. But what's important about this play is that it's on the threshold of the modern world and it's introducing a woman who's the source of all the changes that take place. So in a way that's consistent with Chaucer, the men in this play don't fare very well. Okay, the king is a good man, but he's failing. Uh, Lefeu's a good man, he's old, he can't do very much. Parolis is a fool, so is the clown a fool. It's only, it's only by virtue of what Helena does that this regime can be saved. And it's interesting in this story, unlike the Griselda story, the woman is very active. Remember in the Griselda story, Griselda's absolutely obedient to her vows, absolutely. But she's passive, she has to suffer everything. Helena is absolutely faithful to her vows. What she's confronted with is something as seriously as Griselda is in uh, Clerksdale. Bertram sets up these impossible conditions with the understanding that she's not going to be able to fulfill them unless you get this ring off my finger and, and conceive a child. And he knows that's not going to happen. He will never let it happen. So there's no way she can fulfill his vow. But once she does, as a man of honor, he has to abide by it. He can't run away anymore. And you know if you from your reading, he does everything he can to run away from those vows. He doesn't want to fulfill them. 
So um, we're in the modern world. The court is a place, it's called a sporting place. It's where men go to play, to play around with, and women. Um, Parolis is a man of words. Um, everything in the, in the play makes clear the men look back to a heroic age. The men had something to fight for. There was a sense of honor in what they did. Now they're doing nothing. I mean, really, genuinely, doing nothing. They have to go off to fight a war that they're not involved in to, make, to give any meaning to their lives. So it's a world in collapse. It's looking back to this honor world, this chivalric world, where men had a sense of themselves. Um, and it's a world in thought and words. People live in thought. Most of the action takes place in words. People speaking. The meaning comes from people engaging with each other. It's going to be like that in Merchant of Venice. And if you remember Othello, it's going to be like that in Othello. Iago manipul manipulates everybody in a world of thought. So we've entered the world, the modern world. Um, it's in decay. It's lost a meaning. And it's because of what Helena does that it's saved. Um, Just a couple of things to underscore here. I've suggested that it's really important to see that what's happened after the Reformation, particularly the Reformation and the Copernican revolutions, is that we've entered what I call the, ad, the world of signs. That, that people, people look for signs, um, like the Jews um, with Christ. They, they want to bring the world and everything that goes on in the world down to the scope of their rational mind. Um, that's why miracles are so important. Remember in that one, I think it's in Act 3, I think, like, um, Scene 4, when Lefeu says, there are no more miracles. The, the scientists, the physicians could not cure the king. People don't believe in miracles. And remember, if we take Christ seriously, wherever he went where towns didn't believe in miracles, where they didn't believe in him, less could be done. So Helen is taking on a real risk when she goes to the king and offers herself to cure him, um, because you know that if she doesn't, she's going to die. The, the two people of the most extraordinary courage, I think, in the book are Helena and Diana, um, who's a maid. Um, she agrees to hold her promise to Helena at the end of the play when the king threatens her with her life. If she doesn't confess what's going on, she refuses. She says, at risk of her life, she's not going to say it's the women who hold to their vows. The men don't. Um, so, women, a woman, and what's behavior to women is at the center of this fight. I want to try to say this as clearly as I can before I look at the details, because I don't want to lose this, because to me it's, it's one of the most amazing things about the play. We live in a world in which we don't believe in heroes anymore. We believe in anti-heroes. We've gone through this before. Remember, I've asked you this question. Any time, in any effort to try to understand our nature, it's important to ask what our beginnings are, high or low. The beginnings in the ancient world were high. They had a high image of our beginnings, the gods. The heroes were descendants of gods. Our beginnings are low. We believe we came from apes or a big bang or evolved or out of nothing. Or Freud believed that what motivated all of us 
It's one of the determinisms, it's one of his um, claims as a scientist. It's why he's discredited, discredited in so many ways today. His claims were that the determinisms that affect us, that shape our character, are basically two. What One of them is, I mean, there's more, but, but the two most fundamental are the belief in that we're all governed by this polymorphous perverse instinct, that we have this perverse sexual instinct to take on different roles sexually. And the other one was the Oedipal complex, that every, every man grows up wanting to make love to his mother and kill his father. But that's inherent in our nature. And those are the dynamics that lead to all the other psychological dynamisms, transference and all the other concepts that Freud came up with. In Shakespeare's world, that wasn't true. Um, he, looked, he was aware that we were looking, he was looking back to a heroic age, but he still saw possibilities of heroism in human beings because his, his beginning assumptions were different. Remember, Plato said, Plato's great challenge in the cave was, unless a man could see the universal truths, unless he could, the poet, unless he could grasp those and render them in poetry, he could not he could not enter Plato's city, the ideal city that Plato was attempting to form. So it was only the man who saw the very best of our human nature and who saw the worst who could come back into the cave and make it clear to everybody else. Plato believed that there was this depravity in man, but there was this capacity for nobility. He could be virtuous. When Socrates was the image of virtue for Plato. He was the virtuous man. Um, that's pre-Christian, that's Plato. Aristotle believed in virtue as well. The Nicomachean ethics is a book devoted to what it is we do to try to become virtuous. What Christianity does to change that is that it brings a God into our world to offer humans something men can't give themselves. So the end of man according to the pre-Christians are the end of man is justice, living the good life by being just. That's Platonic, it's, I mean, yeah, it's Platonic and Aristotelian. The end of the life of man for Christ, for Christians, is love and beatitude. Love and justice, bringing love and justice together. Because you know that it, through the week, if you listen to the readings, all the Old Testament readings, most of the Old Testament readings tend to focus on justice, the law, the New Testament's on love. Christ was the Father's Son. He never abrogated the law. He didn't undermine justice. He fulfilled it. What the Christian is asked to do is to bring those two things together. To fulfill justice in love, the way Christ did. So, in one sense, that's what Shakespeare's doing in All's Well. That um, Helena has got to be held to that vow, and she's got to do something to bring Bertram to, hold, to meet the conditions that he set for her. So that's what she's up against as a woman. One of the most important things, it seems to me, that's going on in this play that, that I don't think we find anywhere else in Shakespeare, and not even in Dante, is this, and I want to underscore this. Um, one of the things that Shakespeare is making clear in those opening passages about virginity, you know, in the exchange between Parolles and um, Helena, is that Helena's love is not contingent on marriage. 
she has that love as a virgin before she gets married. And she says, not, not in my virginity yet. And then she says, my Lord will find this in me. And she leaves off all those things. A mistress, a captain, a traitor. A, that is, she will be everything to him. This is really important. The notion, really important, the notion of love in the modern world is based on largely the social contract theorists, beginning with Lobbs and Hawk. Hobbes and, Mar and uh, Rousseau, Hobbes, Rousseau, and Locke. The notion governing love in the modern world is, I will do this if you do this. It's quid pro quo. I'll do this for you if you do this. So it's not based on love or self-giving, it's based on compromises. What Helen is saying is, I'm gonna, if I can go to that, hold on, I just wanna get those lines again. What Helen is saying is, she'll be, she'll be everything to him in the state in which she exists, looking forward now. Um, this is Act 1, Scene 1, about line 160. You don't have to go there, you can, because we've looked at, not my virginity, because remember, Parolles has done everything he can to, um, to dismiss virginity. He has nothing but contempt for it. His way of looking at it is, it's nothing, you have, you have to get, you have to stop being a virgin in order to bring life in. So his attitude is very cynical, it's very matter-of-fact. Just have sex and, and bring life into the world. But she says, not my virginity, yet there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, a friend, a phoenix, captain, enemy, a guide, a goddess, she goes on and on. His humble ambition, his proud humility, his jarring concord. She's going to bring together all contradictions. What she's saying is that um, what she feels for Bertram is born out of a wholeness of love, and this is key, that's not contingent on each of them getting what they want. Her giving sex to him, his giving sex to her. The sexual pleasures they will exchange. There's no sense of a compromise. What, what she's showing us is this wholeness of love as a virgin that she will make real when they marry. And I suggested last week that the source of that was Mary. That that would not have been true or possible in the ancient world because they had no concept of a virgin birth. And what makes this even more important, that clearly what's partly behind what Shakespeare's doing is this. Mary brings, Mary brings Christ into the world. It's through a woman, not a male conception, it's the Holy Spirit conceiving with her. She brings Christ into the world because the, the Father, I mean the ultimate Father for Christ is the Holy Spirit, she conceives of Christ. I think what Shakespeare's showing us, and it's consistent with what Chaucer did, but Chaucer never explored it. We know in Chaucer that repeatedly the women are far, far more virtuous than the men. They're far more humble, they're far more gentle, they're far more trusting in God. When men enter that when men enter the city life, this is Dante, this is Shakespeare, all of them, Chaucer, all of them. When people enter the city, what motivates them is pride and envy. The things they most seek are wealth, power, um, influence, or call it image, or honor, image, and pleasure. If you remember, those were the dominant motives in Boethius for all men. 
St. Thomas is in agreement. Both of them say, the four most powerful natural goods motivating men are wealth, power, image. I want people to look at me and notice how successful I am. And pleasure. They're natural goods. They're not evil. They're inherently good. The difficulty is, is once man enters into that testing area of the city, he makes them greater than God, and then they become destructive. Then they, then they lead to disasters. So the motivating forces of the city, we've been talking about this from the beginning, the city is this place of trial. It's what shows the very best of man and the very worst. These are the things that men tend to seek, and women, when they do, and they make those things more important than God, they lose themselves. Um, and that's what we find in this plague, Bertram, Parolis. I mean, the men typically do that. The one person who stands outside of that is Helena. And I think what Shakespeare's showing us is that be, because it's woman who can give birth to a child, she's the one who brings in what we've been calling the anima naturalite Christiani, the image of Christ, the natural image of Christ. Now, I want everybody to think about this because I just think this is lost in our age. In a scientific age, there's no sense in which each child is an image of Christ or an image of God. It's just a child. You can have abortion today. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's not even a child. So our answer to marriage is contraceptions, abortion. The notion that there's anything sacred to vows, gone. The, nation, the notion that life starts in a... I mean, what else can come out of a woman's womb but a human? Those, those notions are gone. Shakespeare's still living in an age where he's looking back to marriage as important because it holds people to their vows. It's the way that people grow in love. It's not a social contract. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And the woman is different from the male, the man, because it's through her and her giving herself to that life that a child comes into the world. And every child is the anima naturalite Christiani the natural image of God. So there's, um, when we look at Helena, that's why so much of what she does with the king, when she goes to him to offer her healing, or so many things that are said about her, are in religious terms. We've gone through those passages, to the allusions to working with God, to trusting in him, but trusting in herself and risking herself are all part of what she does. So, um, it seems to me one of the amazing things that Shakespeare's doing in this play is affirming something distinctively feminine. This nurturing, this giving life um, that the modern world has, I just think, lost any sense of anymore. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons I think this is such a special play. So, um, one of Plato's challenges, it's only the poet who can show the eternal things, and it's only the poet who can show us the greatest evil man is capable of and the greatest good. So Shakespeare's done both. He's shown us men who are capable of real heroism. Chaucer did that. The only story that Chaucer did that in, in the Canterbury Tales is really the knight's tale. The knight was a heroic man. All the other men are... You're nicer, you're more charitable, that's scumbags. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're not very good men. And um, Shakespeare's doing the same. He, he shows us great men 
Henry V, I mean, you can think of others. Um, even the tragic heroes have some greatness in them. But here, in, and he's shown us in the comedies, every one of the, um, except for Taming of the Shrew, every one of the comedies has a woman leading it. Everyone. Women are teachers, healers. Um, they're offering something men don't. Men are riskers, kings, you know, men going after things. And the other class at, at um, Elizabeth Ann Seaton, one of the women when we were talking about Merchant of Venice, was, I was asking the question, why the shallowness? Why are the men so, and, her, and we're going into Iago, you know, manipulating everybody in Othello. She said, because they're all in a world of, they're all transactional. She said, they're all transactional. I mean, they're living on a surface of transactions. How many men today carry a philosophy? How many men carry tradition with them? The fundamentalist doesn't, because what's needed in the fundamentalist is faith. The Catholic is supposed to carry. I mean, it's part of our faith that we carry our traditions with us. It's one of the things that sets us off from the rest of Christendom. So Shakespeare's aware that there's a tendency towards the shallowness in the modern world, this lack of depth, and men are particularly susceptible to it. It's the temptations of the financial world to get ahead and make money. In. So I, I think what he's doing with Helen is really special. I want to look at the doubling, um, because that's part of Shakespeare's exploration of character. So let me, let me go to the play and... Um, because I think most people would miss this. this. This is Shakespeare's exploration of, I think, the male character in this world. Turn to um, turn to Act 2, Scene 3. This male world is going to be unmasked and in a very, very subtle way. And you know from your reading that, that while this action involving men is going on, Helena has made these several speeches that show her sense of purpose, which she's got in mind, the reason she's going to go to Paris. Um, but here's his look at men. Take a look at... Um, Act two, scene three. Fine. I'm trying to, I think it's about 64. Yeah. Um, at the very beginning of act three, Lafuse has that line that I've already quoted, but I'm Glad to say it again. He says, they say miracles are past, and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. People are living in a world of signs. They're, they're only seeing surfaces. They're not seeing beneath the surface. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors, ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. Um, Paroles is describing what happened, about line 25 or so. Are you, in, act, are you in act three now? No, no, act two, scene three, same. Nay, tis strange, tis very strange, that is the brief 
and tedious of it, and he's of a most facinerous spirit that will not acknowledge it to be the very hand of heaven. Pirelles didn't want to say that, but Lefeu does. Helena comes in, and um, this is where she's given her chance now to choose the Lord. Because remember the exchange with the agreement with the king was if she could heal him, she could have her will in choosing a husband. So about line um, 70, 60, 60, Helena says, Gentle, gentlemen, heaven hath through me restored the king to health. She acknowledges constantly that whatever she's done could have only happened with the help of God. So the king allows her choice, and now she's going to go through her ordeal. I want to take some time, so be patient with the reading, because it's, it's, it's going to take a little bit of time to get this out. The king says, choose. Helena says, now, Diane, from thy altar do I fly, and to imperial love, that is the most sovereign, that God most high do my sighs stream. Sir, will you hear my suit? So notice that she's going from Diane, who's the virgin goddess in the ancient world, to this sovereign god. She doesn't name him, but it's an imperial love. Helena thanks her, all the rest is mute. I'd rather be in the choice than throw um, Lefeu. <laughs> um, he, he'd rather have the choice that these men were having than be on a gambling table facing the possibility of getting aces. Helena, the honor, sir, that flames in your fair eyes before I speak, too threateningly replies. Love, make your fortunes twenty times above her that so wishes, and her humble love. No better, if you please, my wish receive, which great love grant, and so I take my leave. In every instance, she offers them the very best. She's not arrogant, she's not proud. She hopes that things will go well, but she knows she's not going to choose any of them. Lefeu is watching this all, and he's getting more and more upset because he's thinking the men are refusing her. He says, these, about line 90, these boys are boys of ice. They have none left her. Sure, they are bastards to the English. Mm -hmm. The French never got them. You know that this is an English audience that Shakespeare's plays, so <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone because Shakespeare knew the French, and he knew the English, I think, better than the French and English knew themselves. So she goes through each of the lords, and then she comes to Bertram and then says, this is the man. The king, this is about line 105. Why then you Bertram take her, she's thy wife, my wife, my liege, I so beseech your highness. In such a business give me leave to use the help of mine own eyes. Knowest thou not, Bertram, what she has done for me? Yes, my good lord, but never hope to know why I should marry her. Thou mm -hmm. knowest she's raised me from my sickly bed, but follows it, my lord? to bring me down must answer for your raising? Remember, this is the king to whom he's offered his obedience. I know her well. She had her breeding at my father's charge, a poor physician's daughter, my wife, disdain, rather corrupt me. The idea that he should marry beneath her. So this is the arrogance that goes with class pride, and we're seeing it explicit here. His only title thou disdainest her, the which I can build up. Strange is it that our bloods of color, weight, and heat poured all together would quite confound distinction. We all have the same blood. We all have gifts. Class distinction shouldn't separate us, but that's the way it is. If she be all that is virtuous, save what thou dislikest, a poor physician's daughter, thou dislikest of virtue for the name, because it's not a title name. But do not do so, 
From lowest place when virtuous things proceed, the place is dignified by the doer's deed. Where great addition swelleth in virtue none, it is a dropsied honor. If real virtue isn't there, even if it's an aristocrat, it's going to be bad. Th by the way, this is Chaucer's poem that I wrote, read a couple of weeks ago, Gentilessa, remember? That goes back to Adam for all of us. He keeps saying he will, he will make up for whatever Bertram thinks is lacking in her wealth. I cannot love her, nor will strive to do it. 145. Thou wrongest thyself, if thou should strive to choose. That you are well restored, my lord, I'm glad. Let the rest go. Helena is ready to give it up before she sees a quarrel develop between Bertram on her account. So once again, she seems utterly selfless in what she's doing. My honor's at the stake which to defeat I must produce my power. Now the king's getting angry. Here, take her hand. Proud, scornful boy, unworthy this good gift. Thou dost in vile, misprison, shackle up. My loving, he's insulting both of them. Um, go on over, or 165. Both my revenge and hate losing upon thee in the name of justice without all terms of pity. Speak thine answer. He's going to punish him if he doesn't come along. Virtue finally says he will, he will marry her. Um, that scene ends with Bertram saying, I take her hand. Good fortune and the favor of the king smile upon this contract, whose ceremony shall seem expedient on the now-born brief and be performed tonight. The solemn feast shall more attend upon the coming space, expecting absent friends. As thou lovest her, thy love to me, religious. This is a religious issue for him. Else does there. Anything else? Anything less? Won't suit. Now here's where I want to go. So just, if, if for a second, picture the scene. Bertram has already come to court saying he owes his king obedience, absolute obedience. He asks him to marry. Um, he doesn't want to do it because Helen is beneath him. The king tries to persuade him, is unsuccessful, and finally threatens him. And then Bertrand um, relents. Now, this is what follows. Lafeu and um, Parolis get together. Um, Lafeu, about line 185, says, your lord and master did well to make his recantation. Recantation, my lord, my master. That is, in some sense, he has no master except the king. That says a lot about Parolis. Is it not a language I speak? I mean, if you say, and I'm, what I said was pretty simple here, what's the matter? A most harsh winner not to be understood without a bloody succeeding. My master, are you companion to the Count Rousselian? To any count, all counts, to what is man, that is, to whatever is manly, because he... He wants to present himself as being this manly guy. To what is Count's man? Count's master is of another style. That's the king. You're too old, sir. Let it satisfy you. You're too old. I must tell thee, sir, I write man, I mean manly, to which title age cannot bring thee. You'll never get to it. What I dare to well do, I dare not do. It's like if he gave in to what's daring to him, he'd fight with you right now. It's like a threat to Lefeu. I did thank thee for two ordinaries to be a pretty wise fellow, that didst make tolerable vent of thy travel. It might pass. Yet the scarves and the bannerets about thee did manifoldly dissuade me from believing thee a vessel of too great a burden. I have now found thee. When I lose thee again, I care not. This is the first time when we get any sense that people have seen through Lefeu, I mean, Parolis. But Lefeu sees him for the hypocrite he is, and he's making it clear to him now. But he's a gentleman, he's of the court, he says, 
Um, so my good widow of Lattice, fare thee well, thy easement I need um, not open, for I look through thee. It's like a wind. He sees him. He's transparent. Give me thy hand. He's going to shake hands with him anyway. And then he leaves. Okay. Parolles is insulted by what just happened. He wants to fight, but we know he's a man to speak about fighting, but he's not going to do it. Lefew comes back. Sir, your lord and master's married. There's news for you. You have a new mistress. So the marriage is taking place. I most unfeignedly beseech your lordship to make some reservation of your wrongs. He's my good lord, whom I serve above is my master. Who, God? I, sir, the devil it is that's thy master. What dost thou garter up thy arms of this fashion? Dost make host of thy sleeves to other servants? Paroli seems to be good enough to worship God. So he seems to be make, giving the impression that he's a pious man because he serves God. Um, that should settle any questions about how well he serves his Lord or the king. By mine honor, if I were but two hours younger, I'd beat thee. Methinkest thou art a general offense, and every man should beat thee. I think thou wert created for men to breathe themselves upon thee. This is hard and undeserved measure, my Lord. Go to, sir. You were beaten in Italy for picking a colonel out of a pomegranate. You are a vagabond and no true traveler. You are more saucy with lords and honorable personages than the commission of your birth and virtue gives you heraldry. You are not worth another word. Remember, his name is Words. Else I'd call you knave. I leave you. He goes, well, he's insulted. Now, let me stop. I want to go to an, a scene towards the end again. Why does Shakespeare put these scenes back to back? What's the relationship between Paroles and Bertram? We could ask the, I mean, I could ask the question another way. Paroles is a man of words, right? He lives, he lives in words. So he can give whatever, he, he can seem to be whatever impression he gives in words. He can talk forever about being this noble guy. The question is, how reliable are his words? But he's a man of words. We could look at him thematically that way, okay, and just say, in one sense, he makes us aware of a quality of the court, that it's superficial, it lives in speech, it doesn't live in deeds anymore, it's very modern, people live in words, they don't always make good their oaths. We're going to see later that he's a traitorous guy, I mean, he's going to betray everybody in his company. So we could look at him thematically. That's not my question here. My question is, is Shakespeare doing anything in setting these two scenes next to each other? Because he's going to do the same thing at the end of the play. I want to go there in a minute, but I want to give this a second before we go there. Let me put it more directly. Is there any way, any way in which Parolis images something in Bertram that Parolis makes visible something hidden in Bertram? Valerie, did you have something? The only thing I can think is that Bertram's words, he seems to mean what he says. They're harsh and mean, but he seems to want to follow through with what he says, and Perlis doesn't. So you have one but meaning and one that's meaningless. Well, take, take that. Is there any way in which you can say what you said about Perlis and say it of Bertram, that that's one quality of Bertram? 
Does Bertram always do what he says he's going to do? Does he, does he always live up to his word? Is he going to do it here? He's told the king he's going to marry Helena. He goes off to marry her. He tells Helena he, to go home that he'll meet her. And he flees. Go ahead. When he was talking about you know, marrying down in his station. And, I mean, he meant every one of those. I, you know, he, he, that was a true thing. So he did it out of, I, I don't know if he did it out of honor. Did or, it. Did what? Mary. Yeah. Of, uh, and I don't know if it was, I don't know if that's the correct word to use here, but um, maybe out of fear or depending how you want to look at the story. But he seemed, uh, I guess when I read it, it, he seemed to be very set in his meaning on those words. So Which the, words? The, the the marrying down the station where he didn't want right. to do it, and right. you know, right. David, you can't make me go. Okay, right. you can. Right. right. Um, <laughs> so so, it's not that those words were meaningless because he capitulated. He still he still means them. Right. Still meant them. Yeah. Right. Well, I think he still means them. He just had, well, except he had, he had to. Capitulate for his yeah. own station or his own honor, or I don't know. I wouldn't say yeah. his honor, but maybe his own life. Um, uh, but but I, I think that the other ones are you know hollow, and you know just you know, shake your fist, a lot of talk, no action. And the other ones were talk and the action and the meaning behind them. Now and he and but I, I guess by action he. He said he didn't want to marry her, but he had, but he did. So I don't consider that him going. Let me to just cut to this because I want to get to. Is everybody clear? I mean, I think what Mark is saying true. What he, what he said in his exchange between the, with the king is, fairly accurate. I mean, he didn't want to marry. Thought it was insulting and beneath him to marry this woman, but he finally does give in and says he will, and he goes off to marry her, and he does marry her, um, and then runs. He sends, well he does, he, he, um, he runs away. He goes to Italy, he sends a letter to his mom, he sends a letter to the king. So he's not making good on his words. His vow, he made a vow, he's married. He made it clear to her that he won't fulfill that vow unless these conditions are met. And we know from the conditions that they're virtually impossible. I mean, from that point, of, if we've not read the play, when we get to that point, we think it's not gonna happen. You know, um, so let me just suggest this, and then I wanna look at the other one. What Shakespeare's doing in a really interesting, because he, he knows human character. And let me put it a little bit differently. Bertram's a noble man. He probably is a really good-looking man. And, and there's every indication that he's that way. He probably is a, a good-looking man, like a young guy in high school or college who's a stud and all the girls look up to him and, you know, noble, a football player, whatever he is, and manly and um, attractive and... When he, gets to, when he gets to Italy, you have the sense that this is a, a lord of the French throne. Um, he's, he's attractive. Um, how easy is it to look at something evil in a man like that when to all appearances he's good? Just hold that thought in mind because I want to go to the end. In presenting Parolles as he does, I think what Shakespeare's doing is showing this is an aspect of Bertram himself. He's a visible image of something invisible in that. He's a character in his own right. He's Parolles. He moves the action forward. Thematically, certainly does by bringing in these questions of virginity and marriage. But in one sense, he's giving away something in Bertram 
And it's a serious question of how much Bertram knows himself at this point at all. Shakespeare does. What I'm suggesting at this point is that Shakespeare is a great reader of character. And he's helping to see, helping us to see dimensions of Bertram by the way he uses other characters and what they do. In this case, Parolis. Because what's just happened in this scene? Bertram was partly uncovered. Really, partly unmasked. I, mean, I hope that's clear. Were any of you, did any of... Well, let me, let me express my own. As I read the scene, I was embarrassed for this man. Because he came to the court saying, you are my liege, I give you obedience. The king asked him to do something, and he starts quarreling with him. This is the king. This is the king. As I watched this man do that, I was, in, I was ashamed of him and embarrassed. Um, um, I mean, he didn't give his life. What we're going to see when these men go, and this is really the, this is one of the ironies of this French court. Are the, what, what are these men fighting for when they go to Italy? For their nation, for their people, to give their lives for the good of those they love, or family, or friends, or they're, they're doing it for themselves, for their own self-honor. And everything Bertram does there is shameful. He shows himself to be a noble man. He's a fighter, but he's fighting for himself. And we'll see that in a second. So what Shakespeare's doing in a really an amazing way is he's just exposed Bertram, half exposed him. And in the following scene with Parolles, Lefeu half exposes him. So they line up. That's not an accident, okay? Now hold on to that. Let's go to the back of the... Um, you know what happens at the end. Go to um, Act 3, Scene 5. The Countess has just received a letter from Helena saying that she's going on this pilgrimage. She is um, wounded at the thought of what her son has just done. Um, at the end of Act 4, or Scene 4, she says, What angel shall bless this unworthy husband? He cannot thrive unless her prayers, whom heaven delights to hear and loves to grant, repeave him from the wrath of greatest justice. Right, right, Ronaldo. To um, this unworthy husband. When happily he shall hear that she is gone, he will return and hope I may that she, hearing so much, will speed her foot again. Let her by pure love. There's this sense that the women have, that the men are absolutely oblivious to, of the powers of love to work in human relationships. It's the Countess here. Um, this Act, act 3, Scene 5 takes place in Florence with Diana and Violenta and uh, Mariana and the widow begins by saying nay come for if they do approach the city we shall lose all the sight they say the French count has done most honorable service so Bertram has already distinguished himself look at line 15 um, Mariana says I know that knave hang him one parolees a filthy officer is in those suggestions for the young earl Beware of them, Diana, their promises, enticements, oaths, tokens, and all these engines of lust are not the things they go under. 
That is, it's not the way they appear. Many a maid hath been seduced by them. And the misery is, even though all these women have had all these examples, they know it's happened because they've seen it happen to all these other women. This is what men do. That so terrible shows in the rack of maidenhood cannot for all that dis dissuade succession. That they are limed with twigs that threaten them. In spite of all the examples to the contrary, these men never live up to their O's. They keep buying them off, have sex, and leave. Okay? Um, now, um, they're watching the men on about line 55. There's a gentleman that serves the count reports, but coarsely of her, what's his name, it's Paroles. I believe with him in argument of praise or to the worth of the great count himself, she is too mean to have her name repeated. All her deserving is reserved honesty. So she's, and once again, she's um, self-deprecating. She is too mean to have her name, that is too lowly to mention her, she's too modest. All her deserving is in a reserved honesty and that I have not heard examined. People still don't know. Um, alas, poor lady, tis a hard bondage to become the wife of a detesting lord. Um, now they watch the men go by, and then on Act, Act 3, Scene 6, this is the time when the lords first confront Bertram <clears throat> with the fact that Parolles is not who he seems to be, about line 5 or so. They're saying he's not who he seems to be. Do you think I'm so far deceived in him? <laughs> Put, put this another way. What does it say about Bertram that he doesn't see through Paroles? If he can't see through him, how well could he understand himself? Just let me leave it there. Um, do you think I'm so far deceived in him? Believe it, my lord, in my own direct knowledge, without any malice, but to speak of him as my kinsman. He's the most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no... No one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. Worse, it were fit you knew him, lest reposing too far in his virtue, which he hath not, he might at some great and trusty business in a main danger fail you. He will put the whole company in danger because of his treachery. If anybody depends on him and he lets them down, lots of people can die. So, um, going over about line 80... Parolles comes and he talks about trying to recover his drum and everything he says seems to make it clear how heroic he is. He's going to go do this heroic deed. Bertram watches all of this thinking, this is the noble man I've known all along. He's going to go try to recover his drum. What, what a noble thing to do. Bertram, I know thou art valiant and to the possibility of thy soldiership will subscribe for thee. I'm completely behind thee. Farewell. Parolles, I love not, I love not many words. Okay. Um, First Lord, Parolles is gone, no more than a fish loves water. Second Lord, you do not know him, my Lord, as we do. Certain it is that he will steal himself into a man's favor for a week escape. He'll go off and pretend he's been fighting when he's been hiding. <laughs> Why do you think he will make no deed of all this that so seriously does address himself unto? None in the world, but return with an invention. He will make up all these stories. Um, going down a few lines. Now, the lords have warned Bertram. He's performed these heroic deeds. Um, 
Parolles is going to go off and deceive the men, and the scene ends this way. I must go look to my twigs, that is, something to trick him. He shall be caught. Bertram, your brother, he shall go along with me. First Lord, as it please your lordship, I'll leave you. Bertram, now will I lead you to the house and show you the lass I spoke of. But you say she's honest. That's all the fault. I spoke with her but once and found her wondrous cold, but I sent to her by the same coxcomb that we have in the wind, tokens and letters which she did resend, and this is all I've done. Okay, so Parolles is off, going to deceive them in, and Bertram's going to go off and see this woman. Um, now, it's at this point that um, Helena speaks with the widow and asks her to take a part in this plot. Two plots are going on. The lords are going to um, catch Parolles and blindfold him to expose him to Bertram. And you know that Helena is working with a widow to try to take the place of Diana in this tryst that's supposed to take place. Okay. Um, on, on this is scene seven, about line 30. Now I see the bottom of your purpose. This is the widow to Helena. You see it lawful then. It is no more but that your daughter, ere she seems as one, desires this ring, appoints him an encounter, in fine delivers me to fill the time, herself most chastely absent. So the, the daughter um, won't compromise herself sexually, and Helen will take her place. Okay, so no, no illicit deed will take place. In fine delivers me to fill the time, herself most chastely absent, after to marry her, I'll add 3,000 crowns, because once this takes place and they go back to France, the, the king will reward her. The widow, I've yielded and struck my daughter how she um, shall persevere that time and place with this deceit so lawful may prove coherent. Every night he comes to music of all sorts and songs composed to her unworthiness. Um, it nothing steads us to chide him from our eaves, for he persists as, as if his life lay on it. Why then tonight let us assay our plot, which if its speed is wicked meaning in a lawful deed and lawful meaning in a lawful act. It seems in fact illicit, unlawful, because it's a tryst. It's a lord who's already married, right? He's married, um, and, and the girl knows it. He's going to have an affair with her. He's bribing her or flattering her with all these tokens. So in, on the surface, it seems illicit, unlawful. When as a matter of fact, it's going to be illicit because Helen is going to take um, her place. Now, you know what happens. Um, the men catch Parolles and blindfold him. And um, I, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm going, to, I'm going to put these two together. While that's taking place, Bertram goes to woo Diana. Act 4, scene 2. No, my good lord, Diana, titled goddess, titled goddess. He keeps flattering her to make her more than she is. And she feels unworthy of all the titles that he gives her. That's why she said... Does that make him different from any other guy? Yeah, right. <laughs> this is so crucial. Titled goddess and worth it with addition, but fair soul... And your fine frame hath love no quality? If the quick fire of youth light not your mind, you are no maiden but a monument. This is the uh, 
what's the do it now quickly? What's that motif? The the, the huh? Carpe diem. Yeah, carpe diem. Yeah, the carpe diem, which is one of the great motifs in lyric poetry. I, I should have read one of them in one of the the Marvels to my mistress. My coy mistress. My coy mistress. <clears throat> Yeah. If 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 this if this then he's saying let's get on and do it now. I mean it's it's one of the great motifs of poetry, um, or because its root is in reality. Um, yeah, Shakespeare You are no maiden but a monument. When you are dead, you should be such a one as you are now, cold, for you are cold and stern. And how um, now you should be as your mother was when your sweet self. So he's making these arguments to persuade her. She was then honest. So should you be? No. My mother did but her duty, such, my lord, as you owe your wife. No more of that. He gets angry. I prithee, do not strive against my vows. I was compelled to her, but I love thee. By my own sweet constraint, and will forever do thee all rights of service. So he's offering himself. And so you serve us till we serve you. But when you have our roses, you barely leave our thorns to prick ourselves and mock us with our bareness. How I've sworn, tis not the many oaths that makes the truth. This is her. This, these are wonderful lines. Tis not the many oaths that makes the truth. You can keep going on forever. <laughs> but the plain single vow that is vowed true. This goes back to Chaucer. Four-fifths of Chaucer's stories were about keeping vows. People holding themselves as a trial, as a measure of their real love, no matter what happened. What is not holy, that we swear not by, but take the height to witness. Then pray you, tell me, if I should swear by Jove's great attributes, I loved you dearly, would you believe my oaths when I, um, when I did love you ill? This has no holding to swear by him who I protest to love, that I will work against him. Therefore your oaths are words, there it is, and poor conditions but unseal, at least in my opinion. Change it, change it, but not so wholly cruel. Love is holy. God, just it embarrasses me to read this guy's lines. Um, but not so wholly cruel. Love is holy, and my integrities ne'er knew the crafts that you do charge me with. Stand no more off, but give thyself unto my sick desires, who then recovers. Say thou art mine, and ever my love, as it begins, shall so persevere. He's saying, I will be faithful to you forever. I see that, men's, that men make rope in such a scar that we forsake ourselves. Give me the ring. I'll lend it to you, my dear. He says, I can't. Because remember, this, we've got to get to this question. What does this ring represent? It's not just um, generations of a heritage. It, obviously, for Shakespeare, it means that and more. He says, I can lend it to you. Um, will you not, my lord? It is an honor longing for our house, bequeathed down from any ancestors, which were the greatest obloquy in the world in me to lose. Mine honors such a ring. Now hold on to that. Because she's equating that honor, her virginity, her giving of her virginity with that ring. So a ring is not just a ring. Never has been. Mine honors such a ring. My chastity is the jewel of our house, bequeathed down from many ancestors, which were the greatest obloquy in the world in me to lose. Thus your own proper wisdom brings in the champion honor. That is, you're making my argument for me. Here, take the ring. So, a ring that he should have never given up, he gives her as a pledge to his fidelity. Okay? Um, and they agreed to um, meet um, that night. 
Now I will charge you in the band of truth, when you have conquered my yet maiden bed, remain there but an hour, nor speak to me, my reasons are most strong, and you shall know them, when back again this ring shall be delivered, and on your finger in the night I'll, I'll put another ring, that what in time proceeds my token to the future past deeds of you till then, fail not, you have won a wife of me. Now, for one second, in one second, according to the outward fact, she's a whore. Like all the women that the men are going to have in camp. She's just having sex. But her word right now is, and you will have a wife. Okay? He doesn't know what's going on. But Shakespeare is using this language. I just want to put it out there because these words are important. You will, you will have won a wife of me, though there my hope is done. Bertram, a heaven on earth I have won by wooing thee. And then he leaves. Um, she goes on, since Frenchmen are so brave, marry that will, I live and die a maid. She's committed to being chaste as a woman. Only in this disguise I think no sin to cozen him that would unjustly win. Now, hold on, I just quickly. You know that Bertram is unmasked. The Lord's get him, put a mask on him, bring Bertram, bring him to Bertram, and he gives Parole. away the whole company. Parole. Or Pearly, sorry. Pearly gives away the company. He gives them their information, their numbers, everything to destroy. We know afterwards that the that the um, French and the Italian company won. They defeated their enemy. But but we see how dangerous this man is, how deceitful he is. Now just I'm, quickly, I want to go, I want to get this in because I want to spend a few minutes with you. You know that, that um, Parolis is uncovered, um, that the um, news is sent to um, Rosillian and the Countess that Helen is dead and that um, Lefeu expects that his daughter will marry Bertram. And Lefeu is glad about it. And, and once again, Bertram gives his will. He says he'll be glad to do it. This is a woman of nobility. So they're in the, they're in the um, they've returned to Marseilles. And, um, and then they go to the Count's place. Um, and they're grieving Helena's loss. Bertram's returned. They see this ring on his finger, and the king recognizes the ring that he gave Helena, and that she said she would never remove it from her finger. He, when he sees there, and he asks, when he sees it on Bertram's finger, he suspects some foul deeds and accuses him. And Bertram says, "Absolutely not. He knows nothing about it. The king's got to be mistaken." The king sends him off, and then they get this note on Act Five, Scene Three. About 145. Upon his many protestations to marry me when his wife was dead, I blush to say it, he won me. Now is the Count Rossillian a widower? His vows are forfeited to me and my honors paid to him. She met the conditions that they established between the two of them. He stole from Florence taking no, that is, he did with her what he did with Helena. Okay? Um, he stole from Florence, taking no leave, and I followed him to his country for justice. Granted me, O king, he knew it best lies. Otherwise, a seducer flourishes, and a poor maid is undone. So the issue right now is men are going to be able to take advantage of women sexually and not be responsible for it. That's what Bertram's presented. 
um, the, the, the two principles, and this is so important in this play, what Bertram makes clear is that lust is a principle of disintegration. It breaks up, it destroys, it breaks vows, it uses people, you can use this woman. Marriage is a principle of integration, of bringing together, of holding on to love so that people can learn to love. So those are two of the poles of this movie. The lust that the men engage in, typically at war, and Bertram's an example of other things going on, and the women who give in to it, who are complicit in it, and those who don't, Diana and Helena, okay? And I want to read this, and then I want to go back to this question about doubling again. Um, she, uh, this letter is read, and then she appears, Diana appears at the court, and um, she identifies herself as belonging to an important family, about line 160. I, my lord, a wretched Florentine, derived from the ancient Capulet, my suit as I do understand, you know, and therefore now how far I may be pitied. I am her mother, sir, whose age and honor both suffer under this complaint we bring, and both shall cease without your remedy. That is, they'll lose their lives or their honor as women unless he does something. So it's, there's a serious question of justice and love reaching a climax here. Come hither, Count, do you know these women? Now here's what I want to get to. My Lord, I neither can nor will deny, but that I know them, do they charge me further? Why do you look so strange upon your wife? She's none of mine, my Lord. If you shall marry, you give away his hand, and that is mine. You give away heaven's vows, and those are mine. You give away myself, which is known mine, for I by vow am so embodied yours, that she which marries you must marry me, either both or none. That is, they're either married or not, because that was his vow. Your reputation comes too far short for my daughter. You are no husband. Lefeu's getting disillusioned with Bertram. He, now, a few months before, he, he wanted to see the marriage go through. Now he's seen a, a side of Bertram again that's disgusting him. Um, my lord, this is a fond and desperate creature whom sometimes I've laughed with. Let your highness lay a more noble thought upon my honor. God. On my honor than for to think that I would sink it here. Sir, for my thoughts you have them ill to friend till your deeds gain them. Fair, prove your honor than in my thoughts. That is right now his honor is in question and he's telling him to um, justify it, prove it. Good, my lord, says Diana, ask him upon his oath if he does think he had not my virginity. This whole question of virginity comes down to something the modern world has lost. When a woman gives up her virginity, she gives up her being. That is her. She's not just a thing according to science or an object for men's lust. It is her being. She's giving herself to a man. Ask him upon his own if he does think he had not my virginity. Remember she said when he said, I can't give you the ring because it's my honor. She said, my own virginity is my honor. I'm giving you. What sayest thou to her? She's impudent, my lord, and was a common gamester to the camp. He does me wrong, my lord. If I were so, he might have brought me at a common price. Do not believe him. Oh, behold, this ring, whose high respect and rich validity did lack a parallel. Yet for all that, he gave it to a commoner at the camp, if I be one. He blushes and is it. The countess see it's true. She says, um, That gem conferred by testament to the sequent issue, hath it been owed and worn, this is his wife, 
that rings a thousand proofs. Um, go down a few lines. She has that ring of yours, the king says. I think she has. Certain it is I liked her and boarded her in the wanton way of youth. She knew her distance and did angle for me, maddening my eagerness with her restraint, as all impediments in fancy's course are motives of more fancy, and in fine her infinite cunning with her modern grace subdued me to her rate. She got the ring, and I had that which any, any inferior might at Marcus Price have bought. Let's stop here. Characterize Bertram. Men's virginity. That doesn't even come through. Wait, can we not? Can characterize Bertram. He's a cad. He's just bad. He's just overwhelmed. Flesh it out, Jeannie. He has. He's dishonest. He's lying to protect himself. He has no. Yeah, wasn't he saying. Uh, he has no uh, honor to honor his vows to either. Helen <clears throat> or Diana. He's trying to get out of a bad situation. He's. he's Scheming. And he's putting it all on her. He's blaming her. He's blaming her. First he didn't do it, and then, well, okay. She made maybe it. Maybe right. it's right. right. her fault that I did. It's right. Right. when your wife finds out right. your girlfriend. Right. <laughs> she held out, so he had to give her the ring. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I just had to give her It's her fault. It's her fault. What? Okay. Go back to my question. In that earlier scene, we saw, we began to get a glimpse of something below the surface of Bertram. He's quarreling with the king. Again. No, wait, oh, the first scene. He's quarreling with the king. And, um, and to me, it's an embarrassing scene because he's already said, he's, he's been called to the court, he's pledged his life, he, and, and he pledges to the marriage, and he runs off, and it's clear these men are not fat fighting a national battle, they're fighting for themselves. They're only doing it to, for their own honor. He distinguishes himself in battle, so there's something good in him. But he gets married and he breaks his vows. He sends a letter to the king, sends a letter, and he runs away. Now, he, and that's followed with that exchange between um, Lefeu and Parolis, where Lefeu is unmasking Parolis, partially. So one scene is followed by the another, and there's, an, there's analogies between the two. Now you've got these two plots going on, one involving Helen and Diana and the mother, and the lords with Parolis to unmask Parolis to Bertram. And they do, and it's an embarrassing scene, and it's one, and, and the man says, you do not know him. How well does Bertram know himself? And here's the question that I want to ask. What happens at the end is analogous in the same way. We've got an unmasking of Parolis in the company of lords, right? And here at the court, we've got an unmasking of Bertram. So my question, I know there's lots to be said. I mean, Bertram to me is a, just a, he, he, I mean, he, he, wait, wait, I want to make the, and I want to stay in play as much as I can. This is a French court, a modern court, caving in at a time of change, moving from an old world to a new. Something is happening here that's radically different. And this woman's role is absolutely essential. What she brings to this is a humility and a love none of the men get close to. My question here is, why does Shakespeare line up these things with Bertram and Parolis? Take the second set of scenes now. Um, is, 
what do we learn about Bertram from Parolles in all that happens there? Particularly if we put the two men together, because they're supposed to be fighting together. They're soldiers on a field of battle. There's a kind of battle going on in the courtroom. It's sexual and marital, but what do we learn about Bertram from Parolles? Both of them will say whatever they have to say to get out of the pickle they're in. Yeah. Parolles will give up all of the information, and Bertram will first deny and call Diana a liar, and then common strumpet, and <laughs> then he'll say it's her fault, and he'll just say whatever he yeah. has to say. Anybody else? What does Shakespeare gain? This is really extraordinary. <coughs> if you're reading a modern novel, if you're reading Dostoevsky or Faulkner, particularly Dostoevsky or somebody like Proust in a modern novel, Henry James, you get a modern description of a guy, and, and I know James does this, he'll sometimes use character, subordinate characters to throw a light on a main character. This is Shakespeare, 16th, 17th century. Parolles is a character in his own right, but I'm suggesting here he's also a visible image of something invisible of Bertrand. What does Shakespeare gain by doing this this way? It's almost like he's showing the current nobility, as in those who are younger or in power now, seeking to gain power, have nothing good in them. You know, they're willing to do and say anything, so they really do. They really aren't noble. So that the current modern world has lost its nobility. Um, it takes it through by giving up your fellow man in a fight. Sorry, by what? By giving up your fellow man in a fight. Oh, right. By, to do that. Right. by right. tricking a woman out of her virginity, by breaking your vows, that all of the things that are supposed to be good and noble that they profess to be within the modern world no longer exist. Yeah. They're willing to take all of that away. And it's almost, I guess, a, a uh, diatribe upon the modern world as he sees it. That there is no honor, there is no um, dignity, there is no virtue, there is nothing of that left because this is, whether you know, it's right or not, I know, but that seems to be what he's kind of trying to say. Yeah, let me come at it this way, because I agree with that 90, 95%. Is it, is it Shakespeare's way? If you got in a modern, if you took, a, if you watched a modern fundamentalist film, it would be black and white. I, mean, I don't know what fun, if you're even aware of fundamentalist Christian films, but they're sort of flooding the market today, and they'll all turn on an act of faith: Jesus is my savior, and it's done. It's black white. Is Shakespeare's treatment here black white? Is it there's is it that there's no no good left in the nobility at all, or is it that there is some nobility left? some inherent good, but there's so much bad that needs to be answered. It's his way of trying to hold on to some nobility in man when the corruption is so great that we're watching it unfold. And because Shakespeare doesn't think in terms of black-whites. He's, he's, he's Catholic. He's not damned, saved. It's there, Shakespeare believes that there is this inherent goodness in man and here, I just wonder if it's his, not his way of showing, protecting. He doesn't make it a black-white as we would in, in our modern world. He's showing that there is this real nobility. He, no, uh, Bertram showed it in battle. 
He's a scoundrel in sex. I mean, he can't control his lust. The, the court's in decay. I, I, my own thinking is that he's, it's his way of showing because he does this. So, I mean, all the, if you've read the tragedies, you know that tragic heroes are not damned. They're all good men. They, they have a moment of recognition and a turn takes place, but they have to deal with the real dark sides of themselves that none of them face you know, until late in their life. But I think it's Shakespeare's way of, of holding on to some nobility, that there's something good in humans. But the corruption is so deep that it, this is the cost of it. And in one sense, in my mind, it's his way of underscoring what Helena does that it's only the wholeness of her love, that profound love, and, and to me it goes back to Mary with Mary and the Virgin Birth, that she's protecting, she's protecting a love that isn't contingent on sex. I'll give you sex if you give me, you know, we'll go to bed tonight if, even if I'm tired, if you'll, you know, it's, it's, it's whole before she even begins. So there's this extraordinary, to me it's very Christ-like, and Mary-like, she's so close to Christ in her, the way she puts herself away to get these things done. So to, to be a beat, to carry out this impossible tasks that this guy put on her. And here, and let me put it this way, and, I'm, and I'm gonna quote. One of the, one of the professors asked rightly, I believe, how could she love such a man? Because we hear that all the time. Here's my answer. How could Christ loved any of us? Because I'm, I mean, I'm, well, but, I'm, but we're all asking, what, what he brings to the world is so far beyond what the, um, I mean, I'm looking at my own sins, I'm just, how could he love any of us giving our sins? It's only the person who thinks he doesn't sin who would be above that. Helen is not there. I mean, she's as close to Christ in what she does as any figure I've seen in Shakespeare's plays. So there's something extraordinary going on here. He's doing something here before he goes on to the tragedies and, you know, the dark tragedies and... Something that I think is amazing in his treatment of virginity and marriage that, that, only, that I think only comes down in a Catholic tradition. Protestants are not going to get there. The modern world is not going to get there. But it's implied in this extraordinary thing that she does. And the way he keeps asking us to pay attention to those. You know, she's, she's <laughs> this is so funny. Diane's looked at as a whore. She's, you know, used by the men. And she's not. She's absolutely chaste, and she's Bertram's wife. I mean, not really, but according to the contract. So Shakespeare's asking us to, to, to get off surfaces and not make black-white things, to see that there are levels of reality piled on top of each other, and we've got to get them together to understand what's going on with Helen, what he does with this, this, this woman, Helen, in this play. It, let's stop. We do, we'll spend, a, I'm going to just try to tie some things together when we meet on All's Well, and then uh, we'll do Merchant for, Merchant and Othello, but Merchant for a couple of weeks. Valerie, thank you for the cake. Yes, yes. Thanks for the cake. Oh, you're welcome. Very good. Chester, thanks for the birthday. Yes.